G'day humans, a quick programming note that if you have sent an email to my producer at uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, registering your potential, maybe, possibly, who knows, someday interest in getting more content from Uncomfortable Conversations, joining Team Convo Squad to share the mission of this show, trying to help people to have conversations that are more rational and more humane and more enlightened and less squabbly and less petty to focus on the things that matter instead of the things that don't. Uh, don't worry if you haven't heard back. My producer is uh, having a wonderful holiday in North America. So we've been pre-recording a few of these uh, these each week and he's not going to be able to get back to the hundreds of, of emails all at once. But your, your email has been registered. If you haven't registered yet, there's no obligation. It doesn't mean that you're going to need to subscribe in the future. It just means that you will be at the head of the pack and you will get a benefit for being so. So open your email app uh, and type subscribe in the, in the subject line and send it to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y-C-O-N-V-O-S at uh, gmail.com. We will have a, a paid subscription. I hate having to charge you for it, but there's just no way that we can do what we want to do uh, unless we're pouring money into it. And obviously there's an appetite from you guys to get more content. So you'll get at least one extra additional piece of content each week. You'll get an ad-free version of the show, which has a bonus segment at the end of it. You'll get live streams with special guests and cocktail hours and things like that. So send uh, your expression of interest now to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. Just type subscribe and then you'll be on the list and that'll be ready to roll out uh, in coming weeks. Uh, what made you happy today is my question for the day. I opened the newspaper the other day, and my goodness, there was a lot of there was a lot of bad news. There was environmental news. There were court cases about corrupt politicians. There was stuff about things abroad. There was the war in Ukraine. There was just a lot, and it was a good exercise to make me think. Okay, where do I want to locate my consciousness today? Do I want my psychology to be inhabiting this abstract nether realm of ideas and distant problems over which I have no control? Or do I want to locate my consciousness in the things around me, the people around me, the places around me, the things over which I do have some control? And in a strange way, it can feel more exercising and more invigorating to fight the huge battles than to fight the small personal ones. It's easier to go out to a protest march about climate change than it is to tidy your room and make your bed. So sometimes I think it's worth just reminding yourself, where is my head? What am I focusing on? It might be comfortable to rail against global injustice, but sometimes focusing on the little things that I can control is more productive, even if it might feel, in the moment a little more uncomfortable. Today on the show, someone who always fills my cup. I first met this guy, Pandit. He's, was, he was a monk. He was the, he was the first Hindu chaplain of uh, Columbia University, one of the most prestigious Ivy League universities in the United States. And uh, he, I met him when I was working on HuffPost Live in New York and we were talking about spirituality and he came on and, you know, full monk getup, like orange robes and everything. And he and I really hit it off and I just thought he was very wise and had a very 
calm and centered attitude towards life. And I visited his monastery in lower Manhattan and he was so kind and just exuded this energy of like, I was like, I want more of that. I want more of this person in my life. It was less, I mean, it was, it was about his ideas, but it was as much about his manner and his mode of being, his kind of monk-like, zen-like attitude towards everything that I found so captivating and so appealing. So it was interesting to me to hear from him out of the blue recently saying that now he's no longer a monk. Now he's essentially a, a corporate speaker and an educator who wears a suit, not the robes, and talks about mindfulness and the chaos monkeys in your brain. So I wanted to talk to him about that evolution and about how he's managed to kind of repackage the two hours a day of meditating and living in temples in India and all of that kind of heavy spiritual stuff with modern corporate capitalist life. It's a fascinating chat. I hope you love Pandit as, as much as, as I do. Uh, please enjoy oh, the book, of course, I should, uh, I should plug. It's called Closing the Apps, How to Be Mindful at Work and at Home. The analogy being not just closing the apps on your phone, but closing the apps that are constantly running in your head. Uh, please enjoy the one and only Pandit Dasa. I'm so delighted that, uh, to hear from you again. It was nice to hear from you out of the blue and uh, to learn that you're no longer a monk. Well, I haven't been for about eight years now. <laughs> <laughs> Our time flies. Uh, so when, time was the last fly. time, when was the last time I saw you? You must have been the chaplain. I mean, I think we first met when you were the chaplain at uh, some Ivy League institution. Columbia right? University, yeah. I think I think Columbia, we right. talked on your show at the Huffington Post like a decade ago. I think, yeah, or, or more. Yeah, that right. yeah, that would be because that would be would have been the year I started. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's the year the, the, the year that HuffPost Live began uh, was a decade ago. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's exactly when it happened. Then. Amazing. Can you turn yourself up at all at your end, or can you get closer to your mic? Um, well, my mic is yeah, right next to my. Up. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm wearing a headset, so I'm right next to the mic. That's is this perfect. better or is it the same? It no, that's better. Okay, okay. So I'm just like, yeah, okay, great. now I know what to do. Got it. Okay, <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, and so, what was the trajectory of uh, of your? Well, actually, why don't we go back and you tell people how you, you know, how you came to become a monk anyway? Because you, did, it's not like you grew up in India in a highly ascetic, uh, you know, poor religious family. No, yeah, and, and my parents didn't drop me off at a cave or, or at a monastery at the age of five, right? Like when you want to think, <laughs> romanticize yeah. the idea. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, we, we came to the U.S. in 1980. My parents came over with very little to no money. They were working seven days a week selling gift items at Venice Beach in Los Angeles, California. Very simple, very humble beginnings. They were working literally seven days every single day. And then, you know, I was just sort of exploring America um, on my own at Venice Beach. And then in a matter of about eight years, they established a multi-million dollar jewelry business. So it was hard work, luck, combination of all of that. And life was great for a while. We were living the American dream. And then in the early 1990s, my parents' jewelry business actually collapsed. Their factory caught on fire and we went almost completely broke. Oh my and goodness. 
Yeah, and when that happened, that really served as a trigger. It really made me start to ask all the questions like, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Uh, why, you know, and how am I going to get back to life as the way it was? And so <laughs> Sounds then, like someone needs some spiritual insight. Someone was <laughs> yeah. ripe for a religious awakening. <laughs> why did bad things happen to good people? Yeah, I mean, I was ready at that time. I was looking for answers. And and you know, my my dad decided to explore new business opportunities in post-communist Bulgaria at that time. Okay, and, natural choice. <laughs> natural choice. Well, that's which is what my everyone list, does. My, my list right yeah. here of places to go to if things go south in Sydney. <laughs> and I've got yeah. post-communist Bulgaria. I'll just uh, give that a tick of approval from Pandit. Yes, yeah, so how things go in? Uh, how things go in Bulgaria? It was crazy. It had just come out of communism. So you know, we went from living in a six-bedroom house on a hill to a one-bedroom apartment in a country where no one spoke English. Everything on TV was either in Bulgarian or Russian. There was no places for me to go play basketball or tennis or soccer or like everything that I used to play, not soccer maybe, but everything else. And there was no internet. So my life as I had known it came to a screeching halt, basically turned upside down. And that's when I started to practice a little bit of mindfulness, just trying to understand how to stay sane in this turbulence and upheaval and uncertainty that I was going through. And, uh, you know, we spent a couple of years there, came back to the U.S., to the East Coast, to New Jersey. Then my parents had a little business in Manhattan. I helped them with that little. Then in 1999, I decided that, you know, I just need to take a break from everything that's been happening in my roller coaster of my life. And I need to go clear my head and some of the monks that I'd met in New York said that, why don't you go to India and check out a monastery there and just, you know, get a fresh perspective on life. I'm like, okay, I guess that sounds good. And so I did. I flew off to a monastery in Mumbai, India in 1999 with the idea of being there just for a month. That was it. And here I am living with 40 monks sleeping on a hardwood floor. No one has any possessions. No one has a bed, a mattress, their own room tiny three foot by three foot closet, waking up at four in the morning and meditating for a couple of hours a day. And to my own surprise, I mean, it wasn't easy, but I kind of fell in love with that lifestyle, the simplicity of it. And the rest of the day was spent serving one another and serving the community. So it really was a life of simplicity, humility, and service. Ended up spending six months in India as a, well, not exactly as a monk, just sort of checking it out. And came back to the U.S., moved into a monastery in New York, thought I'd be there for maybe a few months, spent 15 years living as a monk, Josh. <laughs> Simple uh, thing, like everybody goes through this stuff, you know. Was the, 15, was the 15 years living as a monk in New York City better or worse than the six months spent living as a monk in a temple in India? <laughs> well, New York was exciting. I don't think I could survive India. India is a little too congested for me, so I think I would have to vote for New York. Although the good thing is that the three foot by three foot closet that you had to live in is is Duriger in Manhattan as well as India, so probably didn't have to put up with too much space in, given New York real estate. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, just before we leave the subject of Bulgaria, the, you reminded me of a great line by P.J. O'Rourke, the humorist who was writing after the fall of communism, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, he, he says that like 72 years of communist indoctrination and propaganda, all the tanks and the, the Soviet hardware, the military, this huge totalitarian system was basically brought to its knees because nobody wants to wear Bulgarian shoes. 
<laughs> really? Huh? You know what I mean? It was like it was the capitalism and the desire of people for Sony Walkmans and Levi five hundred one jeans that uh, that brought it down. Uh, so that's my little Bulgarian Bulgarian joke. And then, what leads you to becoming? I mean, after you've been a monk for fifteen years in New York, what leads you to leave? Well, I think multiple things. So, you know, when I was a monk, I was doing a lot of lecturing and teaching on college campuses like Columbia, New York University, and just around the country, I was traveling around for like a dozen years. I spoke to college students with, about mindfulness and stress management, work-life balance, all of these things. And I just started to get a calling to speak to a slightly older audience, audiences in corporate America who have families or living high-stress lives, who've got all kinds of responsibilities. I just felt I had more to give. And so I, I decided that I wanted to pursue that opportunity. And even as a monk towards the end of my monastic time, I was getting, I had friends who were working in major corporations started inviting me to speak to their groups. And when that was well received, I was thinking, wow, this is really amazing. Now I get a chance to talk to people who are living very complicated and you know challenging lives with so many responsibilities and I'm able to help them. So that was a major sort of impetus for me wanting to go in that direction. And, and, and yeah, and also I wanted to pursue having a family. I'm like, okay, you know, I've done this, but I want, I want to do more with my life. I want to do different things with my life and really just reach out to as many people as I can. And I'm like, well, wearing robes and walking into a corporation is not really going to cut it. I don't think they're going to really want me there in robes. So even when I did do a couple of talks as a monk, I wasn't dressed in my robes like the, how you saw me. I would, yeah, right. they would ask me, you know, they would ask me to dress in like regular clothes. So I would put on some regular clothes, go give my speech, come back and change. That's it's what funny, would happen. I mean, but I always thought that part of your appeal on the on the occasions on which we spoke when I was working in in New York was that you had you were extremely articulate and clearly very um, astute at being able to communicate with a Western mindset. But you also had the appearance of like straight out of central casting monk. You know, maybe I'm a little, being a little bit Donald Trump here, where like Trump would just cast all of the people in his uh, in his executive administration on the basis of what they looked like. You know, the military man has to look very military with a short, close cropped gray hair and everything. But like, I was like, if I'm going to be running this damn show, then my source of wisdom is going to be Pandit, and he's going to be wearing an orange fucking robe. He's not going to be in a suit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and we were having spiritual conversations on your show. Here in corporate America, I can't talk about spirituality, right? So I can't show up wearing like religious attire. So, uh, you know, it, it all depends. You know, you got to dress right. for the occasion. So, you know, on your show, I remember, you know, we were talking about all kinds of spiritual things and God and everything else. So then, you know, robes are per a perfect fit for that kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you walk into corporate America who are looking to reduce stress and have work-life balance, then there, you know, and, and you got people of all different backgrounds sitting in there and you don't want people to get scared and run away before I even start talking. I remember one speech I gave uh, and it was to a major financial institution I, I, after the speech. And I was still a monk at that time. She came up to me. She's like, you know, actually, I was really upset that they were inviting a monk to speak here, but I'm so glad I attended your talk. Thank you very much for speaking here. <laughs> Why was she afraid? Was she like well, an evangelical Christian who thought that your head would like burst into flames and... I don't you know. She said she was upset. She said that, but maybe because it was a, it was a major financial institution, and maybe they just wanted like a, a corporate talk. Like, why is a monk coming in here? Like, how's what's mm. that have to do anything with our culture, right? So I don't. I, mean, I didn't that's ask an interesting, for that. 
I think this is an interesting sort of misunderstanding of like what religion is. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation we've been having a conversation in in recently on my show in in on on ABC Radio in Sydney about drug decriminalization and stuff and you always get people talking about drugs being bad and drugs this and drugs that. And I'm like, well hang on, cannabis is very different from meth, which is very different from heroin, which is very different from ecstasy, which is different from cocaine and they're all different things it's not like that you can't just have a one-size-fits-all approach and similarly when we talk about religion i mean the kind of religion that a monk is practicing is very different from the kind of religion that an evangelical christian is practicing in its conception of how doctrinaire or rigid the rules are that a particular individual deity handed down for us all to live by isn't it yeah, and also I think the a different approaches, at least in the Eastern traditions, right, which is where I was a monk in, the whole idea of converting others is not such a big deal, right? Like going out to convert others, like everyone's got to believe what I believe, everyone's got to do what I do, because I have the best way. And if we don't practice this way, then you're going to hell, right? So and usually from what I've seen in Eastern, the Hindu Buddhist traditions, that whole conversion aggressive approach to conversion isn't there. And where, at least I know from within the Hindu tradition, people are like, okay, you want to believe what you want to believe? Wonderful. No problem. Be happy with it. Right? Mm. We have no problem with that. I'm not going to try to convert you to Hinduism. I'm not going to try to convert you to Buddhism. So that's one thing that I found a little bit refreshing is that there's not this active looking just to like convert everyone because I've got the best thing. I've got the only right thing on the planet and everybody needs to follow that. So there isn't a one size fits all. I think people have to, even within one tradition, not, not all practitioners are at the same level. There are some that are really gung-ho. They love it. They want to show up to church every Sunday or some want to meditate like in my tradition every day. And some may want to only do that once a week. And that's okay. We have to accept that, right? We can't impose mm. it on. Yeah, it's like Tylenol is not great for everyone, right? Not right. one medicine, like, you know, a doctor doesn't prescribe the same exact treatment for every person who walks into their office. No, but to- Tylenol is great for everyone <laughs> with a headache. And similarly, the argument could be made that some of the practices that you might modestly advocate from the perspective of the monkhood are good for everybody's headache of the soul so to speak like i mean what interest what interests me about the way that eastern religions fit into our into into other religions is that it struck me that it was just so much more about the personal daily practice the sitting quietly the learning to have some kind of mastery over the torrent of bullshit that's flowing through your all of our minds all of the time service to the community it was much less about do I believe in this rule? And in the Old Testament, it says that Job did this. And it's much more about like, what am I doing today? When am I going to be able to sit down and get some control over the cacophony of what it means to be a human being, like having a leading a spiritual life? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. Like mindfulness, which is coming from these Eastern practices, is all about understanding, getting in touch with your thoughts and emotions and bringing your mind to the present moment, right? It's really the act of getting in touch with oneself. And the more we understand ourselves, right, the the more we can overcome the obstacles that we create in our own lives. Like, for example, the obstacle of like, obstacle like, uh, the greed or just judging ourselves and comparing ourselves to 
others and just all of these things, the more it's really mindfulness about going internal and discovering your own self, understanding who you are, understanding the mind, right? Because the mind is such a powerful tool. And I think no one really talks about the mind. Like growing up in school, they talk about physical education and doing push-ups and pull-ups and all these things are great, but no one's talking about training the mind. You know, like I like comparing the mind to a smart device, right? If you have too many apps open on your device, it drains the battery and it slows down. Same thing happens with our mind. An average person has between one and 2,000 thoughts every single hour. So the mind's a very cluttered place and mindfulness can help us close out some of the apps that are just constantly running in the background that are draining us emotionally, mm. mentally, physically. And when we clear them out, then we can actually be more peaceful. We can have more empathy. We can develop more kindness. We can develop more gratitude. And I know that Eastern traditions, and I think Western also, they all have these underlying common ground of being a kinder, gentler, more humble individual where that you know humility like, under, you know, even no matter how successful we are, how brilliant we are, how powerful we are, knowing that it can all be taken away in an instant from one little freak accident, right? So that's, mm. and I think all traditions, and I know that Eastern traditions definitely promote the idea of trying to become more humble, not that we're just always being pushed over and walked all over. No, not that, but just understanding that whatever gifts I have, they can be taken away. And they can go. So let me just be grateful and, and use my gifts, of course, to help my family and to help society as much as possible. So the Eastern traditions do focus a lot on self-improvement, self-development. And they also have, you know, if you want to worship a specific deity, great, you can. But you can also do it in a secular way where you just focused on these mindfulness practices, breathing, focusing, gratitude, focusing on these just to improve yourself. Because once mm. we improve ourselves, then naturally that spills out onto our environment. Then we actually inspire others to be better versions of themselves. We more, become more conscious of the environment. Like, oh my gosh, I should be careful about what I'm eating, what I'm drinking, how wasteful I'm going to be, what my carbon footprint's going to be. So mindfulness helps us, I think, just improve on many levels of our own selves. And as we do that, I think naturally... That is how we also grow in our spirituality. Speaking right? of the environment, Pandit, are you still a vegetarian or when you ditched the monk's robes, did you jump on the back of a deer and sink your teeth into its neck and feast on venison? I turned into a vampire, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm still a vegetarian. You know, like uh, like the saying, I mean, it's my own phrase, like once a monk, always a monk, I guess, you know, to some degree or another. Right. Right. <laughs> so okay. no, I, I have not ditched that. I'm still a vegetarian, you know, um, all the and time. I, I love what you what, what you were saying about like the, that everything could be taken away from us in a heartbeat in an instant, uh, because we all know people for whom that reality, that threat of say a loved one suddenly being diagnosed with cancer or, you know, someone suddenly being assaulted or, <clears throat> you know, them losing all of their, their money or something th that that threat lands for them as a constant ever present source of anxiety. And then we also know people who are more like the Stoics who are like, you know what? I think about that from time to time, just to remind myself of the worst case scenario and to realize that, I would still survive and life would still go on. And so I should just be really, really grateful that that is not currently the path that exists for me right now, but it could in the next minute. And so, you know, if the universe chooses that, then so be it.
Yeah, I mean, it's all about acceptance, right? I mean, life is going to do to us what it's going to do to us. Most of what happens in our life, I feel like, is not really predictable. I don't think anyone expects, most people don't expect to be where they're at. Um, that's not, that's not what, that, that wasn't their game plan originally. So I think the more we move into a space of acceptance that, yeah, I'm going to try my best to live a good, healthy life, positive life, but stuff can happen. I could mm. get diagnosed with something, some, something or another, some, some tragedy could happen. And in that moment, it's going to be hard, no matter how much you've prepared yourself for it, no matter how much mental preparation you've done for that difficult moment, when it shows up, it's going to turn our life upside down. But now how do we respond in that moment? Do we begin to blame others? Like, oh, it's this person's fault that this happened. Like, you know, when, when we lost everything, of course, naturally, I kind of did blame my parents. I'm like, what the heck did you guys do? Look at what's happening here. <laughs> you were shooting against fire. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? Bulgaria, jeez, you know? And I'm like, well, I also made a choice. I chose to go there. I could have stayed back if I wanted to. Um, maybe not, but I don't know. Right. How so, old were you? Huh? I was How 21. Were you? you were 21 when they moved to Bulgaria. Oh, that's on you, dude. Yeah, oh, that, yeah. that's on me. California. Yeah. That, that I could have stayed. You know, so I think that the more we learn to accept what's happening in our life right now, as opposed to complaining and yelling and blaming, I think that the more peaceful we can be. It doesn't mean, acceptance doesn't mean that we don't try to change our situation for the better or try to help someone else and improve their situation. It just means that, hey, I'm going to be patient with this. I'm going to work hard to see if I can change the situation, but I'm going to be patient until my time comes, until that time comes when things do make a turnaround for the better, for the positive. And I think that's another huge sort of component of, of, of like, at least for me, I connect that with also with mindfulness, that it gives you an ability to accept when you realize, I mean, Josh, like, look at it. How much do we control? Do we control our thoughts? We don't. Do we control our heartbeat? We actually don't. It's just happening on its own. Do we control our, our respiratory system? We don't. Do we control our digestion I mean, we can improve it or you know, deteriorate by just not you know, having a healthy diet. But a lot of, most of the stuff happening within our, our, within our body is not even in our control. It's just happening. Yeah, I, don't wanna, I don't want to boast here, but I can hole in a fart for at least 20 seconds. Well, you know, that's that, the kind of control. <laughs> we got to give you a trophy you for that one. <laughs> looking at right here. This is the kind so, of self-mastery. I know that 15 years as a monk, you know, is great and all, but this is the kind of mastery that you have to understand you're in the presence of. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm humbled. And if we were face to face, I would definitely, you know, uh, bow down oh, to that level goes, of mastery. Goes, 20 <laughs> seconds is over. Now it's here. You're lucky, you're lucky you're not here in person. Uh, yeah, what you're saying is great, Pandit, but I think I feel like that. So there are a couple of things that I think are interesting. One is acceptance of where we are, right? And not railing against the universe for not having placed us into an alternate life path um and the the kind of rumination on our past and rumination on our current circumstance that can occupy so much of our time but i think the thing about the stoics that i was pointing to when you were saying you know all of this could be snatched away from us at any moment is the flip side of that which is worry about the future and anxiety about things that haven't even happened yet. I mean, we spend a lot of our time <clears throat> dreaming up imaginary scenarios that aren't real that could happen in the future and then <laughs> stressing out about these things that we've made up. Like the universe hasn't given them to us. We've just made them up that one, you know, someone we love is going to get sick. Um, 
And I find that peculiar. And I, I, you know, I wonder how you, you know, the Stoics wanted to get away from that by sort of, they would like act out and rehearse the worst possible thing that might happen. Uh, and like walk through the village naked, you know, and muddy to prove to themselves that actually when the worst thing happens, it's not that bad. I think Oliver Berkman has a, has a bit in what he's a, um, a philosophy columnist, formerly of the guardian. He, he has a, he's terrified of being embarrassed in public. And so mm. as a stoic exercise, when he was living in New York, or maybe he was in London and it was on the tube or on the New York subway, he would get on, he got on one day and promised himself that before every stop, he would stand up and loudly shout the name of the stop to the entire rest of the car because <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to prove to himself that he was capable of doing something incredibly humiliating in public. And he ended up doing it for like the duration of the entire line or, or something and, and came off feeling incredibly proud and relieved and then never really had to worry about public speaking ever again because he'd just done the most absurd form of talking in front of other people imaginable. Uh, what do you make of that? I guess whatever works for him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was terrified of public speaking and that was, that wasn't my solution to overcoming it. I just did it by teaching in, on college campuses and in corporations, right? That's how I overcame it. But I guess if people want to take extreme measures, you know, I find life kind of funny where you imagine one type of worst case scenario and you try to prepare for it. And that's a completely different type of worst case scenario can happen. Yeah. Right. So like life is not going to give you what you want um all the time and even if it's something you don't want it's it's not going to give you that it's going to give you something mm. something completely different so that you can actually grow and mature from it yeah right? because if we get what we're already expecting not much growth is going to take place because we've already done a mental a lot of mental preparation for that growth it's funny. It, it, i was it, i can't remember who i was listening to but they were, saying, they were talking about how little we can appreciate the coming problems in our lives and they were talking about the you know the end these end of year rap kind of predictions that magazines will make about like you know 2020 our predict our our top picks for 2023 them all of the most intelligent magazines in the world generally do one of these bumper december issues so that the journalists don't have to work they can work they can write it in october and then put it to, mm. to press and like the economist which is a fantastic publication this person was saying it's hilarious to go back and read the December 2019 predictions about 2020 in The Economist. <laughs> you think they had any idea what 2020 was going to look like? And then in December 2021, their predictions about 2022 had no mention of a massive war in Europe, <laughs> like between Russia and Ukraine. So even the smartest people in the world, when they try to sketch an outline of what the contours of the next challenge will be, don't just underestimate it, completely blindsided by it. Yeah, I think nature is so much smarter than we are and is not listening to anyone's opinion in a column in some newspaper. Like, oh, well, I guess they wrote about it. Might as well do that now, right? So <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. Life just is, does not – I didn't expect to be a monk uh, growing up in LA and thought I thought I'd be running my father's business. Everything that's, I never thought the thing I was afraid of most, which is public speaking, literally that was what I was afraid of the most. I didn't think I would do that as a living, like speaking in corporations in front of like thousands of people. I never thought that like my, even my parents can't believe that I do this because they knew how afraid I was. So life 
has a way. See, like the I was saying earlier, the only way growth happens is when life surprises us and not in a pleasant way, right? When right. something unexpected and painful and difficult happens, how do we deal with it in that moment? How do our emotions deal with it? How do we how do we grow from that? How do we mature from that? Or we just end up blaming and crying and complaining um, through that whole thing, and then we miss out on all the growth uh, lessons. And you know, life also when something good happens, that's also a great challenge for us now. When something good happens, do we take all the credit for it? Do we rub it in everyone's face? Um, or do we accept it with some humility and mm. express gratitude to others who have helped us achieve that? Because no one just achieves success on their own. There's always other people, family, friends, colleagues that are involved in our success. So both the good things, the challenging things, and the, and the po- positive things are both tests to us on how we're going to deal with it and how we're going to grow from those. And there are usually going to be surprises. There are going to be surprises. Life is filled with surprises, big and small in all shapes and sizes, and they show up for a reason. Okay? I think you just wrote a Hallmark greeting card. Life is full of surprises. They show up in all sizes. <laughs> well, that rhymed, right? There you go. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you say that, you know, even when good things happen, we don't deal with them very well. And you mentioned that that can be partly because we might take all the credit for them and not understand how how much gratitude we should have. But there's also an interesting phenomenon that I wonder if you've experienced <clears throat> or have seen in people around you, which is when a really good thing happens, you may have fantasized about it in ways that obscured the downsides of the good thing too. And you find yourself, once you've got the thing that you have been chasing for a while, a bit like the dog who catches the car when the car stops and after the dog's been chasing it and then doesn't quite know what to do with the car and realize, and you just find yourself going, oh, okay, here I am in this new situation that I've been looking forward to for a really long time, but I still have to get up in the morning and have a shower and put my clothes on and now figure out what I'm actually going to do with it. That wasn't in my fantasy. Yeah, I think we really do come up with like and now we come up with the best case scenario like you see somebody for example see somebody famous right he's like oh i'd love to have that fame yeah but do you do you want to like dress up and put on a costume every time you go for a cup of coffee outside like you can't even go for a walk peacefully on the street like now are you are you ready for the a million people who are going to criticize you who are envious of your fame who are going to criticize you can you handle that Mm. Uh, you know are you able to handle that are you able to handle the sleepless nights because of like the millions of things going on in your life. So I think we, we don't, it's almost like we see a really nice car. You're like, Oh, I want that car. And you get it. And now it's like the insurance payment on that is huge. You put it, you know, you fill the tank up and it costs for every change of tire costs hundreds of dollars. You're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that all this was going to come with it. So mm-hmm. I think we're to some degree, I think humanity to some degree can be short sighted when it comes to success and all of these things, because we don't realize that everything has a whole different complete, different side to it. It's the another opposite side of the coin, which we fail to see because we only see the, the, the shining part of it. We don't see like, oh, the dog is so cute. Well, you know, then you have to clean up after it. You have to feed it, take it to the vet. You got to do so much other stuff with it too. So I think that, you know, we, we do set ourselves up and we don't sometimes chase something so strongly that we don't stop to see like, you know, well, this is also something that comes along with it that I'm going to have to deal with. And not that that should deter us from what we want to pursue. I think we just approach it with like a, with a healthy balance. Like, you know, in some of the Eastern traditions say you should walk the middle path, right? 
Don't get too excited about something and don't get too depressed when something bad happens. Just mm-hmm. walk the middle path. Accept what comes and accept means the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with it because mm-hmm. you, you wanted it. Now you got, to, got some degree of it, some quantity of it, and now you just have to accept the whole thing. You wanted a baby? Great. You got one. It's going to cry at 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. You, you have to accept that too now. So it's all part of the journey. It's all part of the growth. Everything comes with a package <laughs> of stuff. And uh, too often, we just see the external of that, what it looks like, but we don't look deep within sometimes of what all the things it entails. And because of that, we can sometimes leave ourselves a little disappointed and frustrated. Let's talk about how, what contribution your new book then makes to all of this about like trying to get on top of the insane craziness that's constantly going on inside our heads. What did you, what, what, were, you, what were you shooting for there when you decided to write it? Well, first of all, it was during the pandemic. I had a little extra time <laughs> and I had a lot of extra ideas because, you know, I've been speaking on mindful leadership and mindfulness in organizations around the globe. And I had all these ideas and people were asking me like, hey, after your talk, is there something we can read? And I really didn't have anything. So I'm like, well, now it's the pandemic. I'm not traveling. So I decided to put down all the things that I speak about in corporates, like, you know, what it means to be a mindful leader, leading with empathy, leading with care, you know, not just treating your employees like a number and if, there's, if they're not performing, care for them, provide them the support, don't lead with fear, lead with inspiration, right? So I had all of these thoughts and I started to just put them down so that people had something to follow up on. And I also describe a lot of the mindfulness practices that people can practice at work. Like if you just came out of a heated and nasty meeting and you're just like fuming, what do you do? Well, why not take a moment, remove yourself for a little bit and take 10 deep breaths and calm yourself down before you have your next interaction, because otherwise you're going to carry the baggage of that previous interaction into your next interaction. And now you might, you run the risk of ruining another relationship. If you go into that with a heated mind, with an upset and angry mind. So take a moment to press pause, take a few deep breaths, close out some apps, calm down, and then go into your next interaction. So I'm really hoping that people in corporate America who are so stressed, so anxious, have so much going on, especially when the pandemic and everybody, you see, this is another thing, right? When most people are like, oh, I I wish I could work from home. It would be so great. I could get up when I want, work in my pajamas, eat pancakes at noon. Well, you got your wish fulfilled. Just nature doesn't give it to you the way you want. You can have it for two years. (laughs) You can have it. And and what we're going to do is we're going to make sure your kids are home studying, the pets are home, everyone is home fighting for internet bandwidth and fighting for the best place to have their call or their classroom. And here you go. Here's the full package of what you wanted, right? Everyone's home working from home. So, so my whole, the purpose behind this book was how to help individuals in corporate America, also just in their personal lives, be mindful on a regular everyday basis and specifically what they can do while they're at work to find some calm, to find some peace, to be more mindful in their interactions with their clients their colleagues, and if you're a leader, how to be more mindful when you're dealing with your direct reports. So that was really my hope that after I finish a talk in an organization or some conference that people can go back, get a, get a copy of the book, and just read a little bit more about it, learn a little bit more on how they can be mindful in all of their interactions. And you know, I, it's something I'm hoping people could use as it's something that sits on their desk as opposed to on a bookshelf, <laughs> because you know, I have writing exercise at the back of each chapter that's reflective exercise. Like, 
you know, what are the thoughts that make you really upset? What gets you upset? And why do you think that is? So I have all kinds of questions in, in the back of each chapter that people can reflect on. Like one thing that I think that's really, really prevalent in, in organizations that I hear a lot of is like people don't get appreciated enough for the work that they're doing. And that's such a sour point for a lot of people because you put all this energy into it and you're, and you're, you know, the leaders, maybe they don't properly appreciate or it's just so broad that it's not even specific. And so I talk about the importance of appreciating your people so that that's how you get retention in an organization. That's how you get people to be loyal to you and want to stick around as opposed to posting their resume on LinkedIn. Mm. Right? I mean, so, all of this is very, like you're very much at the zeitgeist, at the cutting edge of the corporate uh, like what corporations are into at the moment. I mean, I would say if there are two things that Silicon Valley and big tech and corporate America are super activated on at the moment, it's social justice issues and diversity, equity, inclusion, orthodoxies, and then how to use you know the insights of the masters and spiritual leaders to coax better performance out of their executives and their their teams and use the wisdom of the ancients and kind of, you know, Tim Ferrissy sort of uh, like spiritual uh, dollops of whipped cream on top of the ice cream of capitalism, so to speak. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I don't mean this to come across the wrong way, but there's a depth and a profundity to your experience and to the person who I knew in New York that took real diligence and self like i guess self-control and self-mastery i mean how many hours a day did you med- meditate when when you were in new york um i was doing about two hours a day i mean i have i've maintained that practice since then right. so you sit down for two hours a day regardless of what's going on in the world around you and you do nothing but be with your thoughts be with the universe, cultivate the practice of disentangling that like flickering flame of spirituality that we call like the self or consciousness from all of the neuronal nonsense that is being fired back and forth in your head. And I do, I do just worry that there's a bit of a bubblegum version of this that corporations want to take on that is frankly a bit fatuous. Like, yeah, take lots of deep breaths before you go into another meeting so that you're not carrying the energy of like, yeah, that's fine. But at the end of the day, don't you have to do the work? Don't you, don't you have to do the practice? Like, no, I, I yeah, exactly. no so I, I do mention that, you know, and, and even when I do practice, it's not like I'm able to like shut my mind off. My mind's like a crazy wild animal, you know, but I try and I do encourage. I'm like, the only way you're really going to be able to practice this is if you do this on a regular basis. There is no shortcut. I'm like, you're not going to remember to take a deep breath when, the, when you're in the middle of a heated argument. Because people want that shortcut. Like, how can I remember this when I'm in the middle of an argument? I'm like, if you do it in the morning, and if you do it the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. Just like what happened to in, in the, the karate kid, right? He was painting the fence so much and waxing the floors that when it finally came time, he was able to defend himself. I'm like, so if you put in the practice, then when you need it, your mind will kick into that space and help you stay calm in that situation. So yes, it may be a bubblegum version, right? But that's what the corporations need. Um, I'm hoping to give them something. Because mm. are you hoping that everything. Is, are you hoping that the bubblegum becomes the thin edge of the wedge through which enough people in a corporation become interested that they actually create a daily practice and they go 
deeper or are you hoping that the bubble gum in itself is at least better than nothing? No. So I do hope it goes deeper. That's my personal hope. And I've heard it from people saying that, you know, I, I spoke at one really large financial organization and the lady there who's now like the global head of some di division over there, she's like, Pundit, you know, you taught me this meditation eight years ago when you spoke here. I'm still practicing it after eight years. Not every day, but I still practice it. I still remember what you taught me. Sometimes I might just practice it in the elevator going from the ground floor to the top floor, but I still do it. So that makes me so happy that, mm. wow, it's, she chose to keep it a part of her life because it benefited her. Most of the people who I teach they do experience a benefit. Like the other last week I spoke at a conference in Dallas and then next morning, the one guy came up to me. He said, you know, the stuff you said last night and then the practice you taught, I think it's going to change my life. And I was like, Oh my gosh. You know, I'm just like here eating some granola and you know, yogurt. And then all of a sudden this person's like drops his hue. I'm like, I just changed your life. He's like, I think it's going to change my life. And then some other guy came up to me and said, I got so emotional after your, what you, that meditation, it went so deep, so much stuff started coming up. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give them a brief experience of what it could be like on a regular basis for them. Right. right. So I'm giving them that teaser trailer, so to speak, so that they'll want to go deeper and watch the full Matrix trilogy, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> They'll want to become Neo. <laughs> your uh, for your ten thousand dollar six month course, one on one <laughs> sessions with that's gonna, I'm going to be pitching you on that. That's your next business opportunity. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm the only reason I'm playing sort of devil's advocate here is because there's so much kind of bullshit in in the corporate world about shortcuts yeah. towards mm -hmm. things and about every exercise being an having an instrumental purpose towards essentially serving some corrupt corporate interests. Like my buddy, Sam Harris makes the point that if you're doing meditation because it's going to lower your blood pressure or make you less stressed or create greater team loyalty in your corporation or increase profits, He's like, we keep reading all these articles about this sort of stuff and about how, you know, corporations are bringing in. I mean, when I was at HuffPost, I don't know if you ever saw the nap rooms that Ariana Huffington set up because she was big on heard sleep. About them. Yeah, and, you know, heard we about had them. ping pong tables and we had like, you know, weekly buffets and things like that. And these are all great things. But if the end purpose is so that the shareholders of the corporation can make more money, or in the case of HuffPost, the vast telecommunications company that had recently purchased us, then Sam Harris makes the point of like, imagine if we treated any other pursuit that is fulfilling in its own right on the basis of whether or not it satisfied these, these criteria of, of these instrumental criteria of other things. Like imagine if we said, oh, you know, a new study shows that reading lowers your blood pressure. Reading, reading fiction novels every evening before bed lowers your blood pressure. Would you want to pin the grandeur, the scope, the scale, the richness of being a reader on the criterion of the fact that it lowers your blood pressure by two points. I mean, that would feel like you're shortchanging, you know, what it means to be a literate person. Like being a literate person is its own reward. And his analogy is being a mindful person who has the self-mastery of some kind of practice of disentangling their awareness of the world from all of the worries about the past and fears about the future and from regrets and from the 
buzzing monkey mind. That is the reward. It shouldn't be, it, we shouldn't need to pin it to whether or not it's going to create superior corporate outcomes or make us a more popular person in the boardroom. See, I agree. I completely agree with that. And what happens is, so in order to introduce mindfulness to people who are completely unfamiliar with it, the research helps. So if someone is a highly productive guy, right? He's like, I just need something that's going to make me more productive. I want to be more successful. I want to be richer. Like, okay, well, here's the research. And here's what you can do, right? That'll help you get there. My hope is that it will also make them go deeper within themselves, right? So they can achieve their goal. And But mine is because I'm teaching it because I want people to go deeper within themselves and become a better human being. And if in the process, they become more successful, I don't have a problem with that because then they'll hopefully use that success in a more mindful and compassionate manner, right? So mm. if that's what they want, fine. I'm like, okay, here, that's what you want to hear. Definitely there's research supporting that. But what it's going to do for you as, you, as a human being, you're going to become a better human being. That means it'll probably improve your relationships. It'll probably just make you less stressed. You'll be more calm. You'll just be a better person to be around. And that means if you're a better person to be around, that you're probably also going to be, have better teams because people like you more. That might mean that your teams are going to be more productive and you might, you're, you might succeed more. So if people want that, if that's all they want, I'm like, you know what? I know how powerful a mindfulness meditation practice is. I know what it can do to people. So if that's all you want it for, I'll give it to you because I know that it's going to do something more than you expected it to. It will mm -hmm. take you deeper than what you expected. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm I'm reacting to the to the fatuousness of so many people in the media and in in the corporate world. I mean, it's not this is not your problem to solve. I don't know what the what the solution is. Hopefully podcasts like this where people can have actual long conversations about things instead of talking about talking in sound bites is partly is one tiny piece jigsaw piece of the whole solution. But like I I saw you I saw a clip of you on uh, on an LA morning show right on TV uh talking about this book. And I was like, my face was practically in my hands at the, uh, at the presenters, at the hosts of the show, who were who like <laughs> these chipper, more, you know, glib morning people. And I know the depth of kind of spiritual insight that you have and your wisdom about humanity. And like, you're talking about like ruminating on the past and how that can be bad. And like this blonde <laughs> host, I mean, I don't mean to throw them under the bus. I'm, you know, I know what it's like to do morning television. It's, it's hard and you've just woken up and you, you know, you don't know who you're talking to because you're talking to so many people each morning and you've got your coffee in front of you and you're just scrambling to get through the show. But she's like, oh, it sounds like what you're talking about is going down that mental rabbit hole. And her, you know, co-host is like, I think what he's really saying is let it go. Just let things go. And so Pandit, you know, and I'm like, oh, there's so much being missed. There's so much being missed that they are not getting. I don't know if it's too much to expect that they will, or if you feel, I don't know, do you feel stymied about how to communicate this, or do you feel fully liberated that at least they're getting something? I, I have the, the latter approach. Uh, I'm like, you know, if at least someone is getting it, like a long time ago, when I first was a monk, NPR uh, got a hold of me, and they did a, like a day in the life of a monk in New York. And years later, right, years later, like five, six years after that interview, so I met someone. They said, you know, I was going through a really dark time. I heard you on the radio. And after that, I started practicing meditation and my life changed after that, right? And that was a set eight, nine minute piece on, on the radio. 
right? So I know that every time I talk about mindfulness and meditation, one person is going to hear it that needs to hear it. And Josh, it's, that's all you can really do. You put the message out there, whether it's two minutes, one minute, one hour, like we're doing right now. I know if we talk about it enough in different capacities, that it will make a difference. If enough people start practicing this, I think the world can change significantly, at least a little bit at a time, because mm. the more we go inward and start recognizing our unconscious biases that we have towards each other, recognize the kind of things we don't like about each other for no reason, I think we will start to become more compassionate. And so I'm happy to speak about this in a very deep way, like a much deeper way, like we are now, or in a, in a lighter way for a, a, on a two-minute show. But I'm like, at least there's always people out there that are struggling, that are looking for answers, and maybe something I'll say inspires them to either get my book or check out a million other books on meditation, look online about meditation, and try some practice on their own. So for me, I'm like, any opportunity is a good opportunity because I'm sure it's going to help someone else. And like that NPR interview, somebody else told me about it not too long ago, like 10 years afterwards, someone said, oh, you know, my mom heard that and she really liked it. And she became more open to meditation after that. And this was 10 years after the thing came out. Mm. I mean, so, of course, what I'm really doing, if I'm honest with myself, when I'm criticizing the uh, the hosts on the morning show or criticizing corporate boardroom, uh, fatuous, uh, you know, p personnel, HR people who are trying to get their teams to be more mindful is just channeling onto them my own self-criticism or my own, my own self-regret for not having gotten into it and for being too undisciplined or too, uh, you know, uncommitted to actually make a, a permanent practice of it. Because I, I do think there's a phenomenon of people like me who are very interested in this intellectually and are interested in the, I suppose, the metaphysics of what it means to be conscious, what we're all doing on this planet, the psychology of how our brains operate, the psychology of wellness and of ambition. And so I'll talk a lot to people like you and I'll talk a lot about the usefulness of being able to separate your sense of self from the monkey brain, but I'll never quite step over and I'll, I've dipped my toe into meditation a million times and then after the third week, think life gets in the way and I go, and I haven't seen enough of a payoff with the exception of sort of temporary, you know, a, a temporary calm huh. that it then gets swept away on the ocean of my to-do list. And so now I'm probably just lashing out at everybody else and blaming it on, <laughs> on America well, you know, and television. One thing is, you said you've dipped into it a million times. And I'll tell you, from my opinion, this is my personal opinion, I think every one of those times you've tried is all building up. So I, I don't see any of those times as a wasted time. That means you invested time in your own self and you kept trying it. And, you know, hopefully after this, Josh, hopefully you'll try it again for a few weeks. And then even if you stop, okay. <laughs> so that, that's my hope that you'll try it. And for me, I'm like, this was a successful conversation. If Josh gives it another try, even if it's lasts a few weeks, because you add up all the minutes and seconds that you've done it, it's phenomenal. That has all benefited your mind. That's benefited mm -hmm. your soul, right? It has had a cumulative impact. I don't think it's just, oh, I did it once and I didn't do it for a year. You for, it's a waste of time. No. Every time you do it, 
as helps. It's, it's, it builds up on the previous time that you did it. So, you know, so like I said, if you do it, I'll, I'll be like, great. This was a, a purpose of my thing was like, Josh did it for a few times and maybe a few people who hear this, try it out or get back into it. That was a successful conversation. That was a successful podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. All right. I guarantee I'll do it for at least another two weeks. Uh, <laughs> before awesome. <laughs> was there a point in your meditation practice? Do you even remember from decades ago where there was some moment where you were like, oh, oh, okay. I think I get, I get what this is now. I think I've had many such moments and they've all been very different. <laughs> you know, there's not just one thing to discover when we meditate. Ultimately, you know, you're, you're trying to go, go deeper within yourself and understand like who you really are. Like, am I just this bag of blood and bones? Like, is that it? Is that all there is to me? Right. And then what the heck is the mind? How deep is the mind? How long has the mind actually been around? Right. It was there in the womb. Was it there before then as well? Like, you know, I, I always think about these things and meditation just helps me kind of dabble into it and think about it because it's so powerful. Then you forget about all the little petty things that we're worrying about. Like my, my phone charger won't reach the wall, you know, or something like that. Um, it's just not, I've had so many of those sort of experiences where I just dive deep into my own existence and meditate on how this universe came about. And I just I get it. floored. You, you meditate on how the universe came about and dive deep into your own existence because your phone charger won't reach the wall. I'm going to send you a new phone charger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll solve see, the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> the mind goes from the universe to the phone charger. And that's how the mind is, right? The mind's like a puppy. If you don't train it, it's going to leave a mess everywhere. If you train it, it'll be your best friend. How do you train it? Regular, consistent practice of you know breathing exercises, focusing exercises. When something difficult happens, telling yourself, reminding yourself, this difficult thing is a stepping stone for my next success. It's not a setback, right? When there's something negative happening, remembering something great, being grateful for something positive that's happening in your life right now, because there's always a bunch of good things happening. So on a regular basis, being grateful for that. On a regular basis, appreciating others in our life that are making our success possible. I'm not just talking about professional success, also our personal transformation. The difficult people that are put into our life are meant, are put there to help us grow because they make us see a parts of ourselves that we haven't seen. So that's how we train the mind, by seeing every opportunity as an opportunity for growth and not an opportunity to complain. <laughs> mm. You know, That's how we train the mind. I especially like what you just said about like looking for positive things in, you know, challenging people around us or like regard it, trying to figure out what we can, how we can better ourselves from people in our lives who are challenging rather than blaming them or hating them. Because a large part of what I'm trying to do in my media life is help people to look at their adversaries in a more generous light and not regard them as adversaries, but as people and to recognize that we're all here having this shared experience and the world is not divided into enlightened, you know, progressives and, and evil, uh, neo-fascist Nazi right-wingers, nor, you know, nor good upstanding religious conservatives, uh, and, and wild-eyed hysterical uh, lefties who want to tear down civilization. Like that's just not the way that most people live their lives. Almost everybody is a complicated bag of 
predispositions and preconceptions and flaws and and good bits. Is there a particular way that you try to encourage people to have more empathy for people they disagree with or who rub them the wrong way? Well, so and I and I just did this earlier today at a talk I gave at, at this conference in LA where I had everybody close their eyes. There was about twelve hundred people in the audience. I said I want you to think of a colleague that you haven't seen eye to eye with. And now think about their positive personal qualities and the positive contributions they're making to your team, even though you don't see eye to eye with them. So what I encourage is people to take those moments, sit peacefully and meditate positively on the people, whether it's a relative, it's a colleague, or it's a neighbor, a friend, someone you haven't gotten along with, someone you've had a disagreement with, and just think of the good that they do. Because otherwise in our mind, we have boxes. And we throw people in the negative box. We have so many people in a negative box. We're like, we're like being weighed down by that box. We need to take people out of that box and put them, if not in the positive box, at least in the neutral box in our mind. Like, okay, I don't love them and I don't hate them. They're in the middle. Let's, let's get people out of the negative box into the middle, the neutral box. And, but that requires time. We can't just be doing multitasking throughout our day and expect us to shift our consciousness and mood and mindset towards people we don't get along with. We need to take time out and think about this person who's done some good things, who's got a family, who's maybe struggling with some things. Again, it just takes a little time to pause and do that one activity of appreciating someone else and having empathy for that person. It can't just happen on the run. It can't happen on the go. It's not, you can't, there's no drive through for that, right? You have to stop, reflect, and then move forward. And then, and then also I'm like, if if there's a way, I mean, you know, in, in a workplace context, I'm like, try to appreciate something that that person said or did somebody you haven't gotten along with and you'll surprise them. Like, hey, I really appreciated that comment in the meeting. I thought it was really helpful. I was inspired by that. And you're the last person they expected to hear that from. Mm. And when they see that it's genuine, it changes their mind and their heart towards you. They'd be like, oh, maybe this guy isn't as bad. Now you just, so we have to be proactive to do that. It's a great way to build relationships just to appreciate someone. Mm. Right. So if we can and appreciate should I, should I appreciate them by saying, I'm surprised at how good that comment was coming from an asshole like you? Is that the way that I should phrase it? <laughs> I think that would be That's wonderful. General Josh, policy. I think I think you gotta put that in your next uh, self-help book, you know? <laughs> I didn't think that a dickhead like you would be able to come up with something even remotely <laughs> as interesting as that. So good on you, shitwad. <laughs> That's what I say at the end of each meeting. I think uh, we all have our own unique approach, Josh, you know? Uh, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. That's so, yeah, I think, all right. So I, what I'm getting from you is like there's a lot of emphasis on taking a moment, like allowing yourself to just pause, reorienting towards what you might call gratitude or like finding the silver lining in somebody or something combined with a daily practice of just sitting down and doing nothing and focusing on your breath for a little while. Does that pretty much sum it up? Yeah. I think just a time of self-reflection on a every day basis or every other day, even if it's a few minutes, it doesn't have to be 20, 30 minutes. Like, you know, you don't have to turn into a monk. It just could be like two minutes, three minutes, just a little quiet time for yourself to be grateful, to take some deep breaths I think that in itself is a great starting point. And, you know, if you do one to two minutes a few times a day, 
it can be powerful. That can really help build a practice as opposed to a 20 minutes uh, mm. at one stretch because that overwhelms people because most people cannot do that. And Pandit, how do you feel about the amount of time that we're spending focused on big issues versus the small? Like I'm I, one a recent guest on the podcast with David Plotz who who was previously a political journalist and who's a co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. And he now works on a podcast that's very much about people's local cities and their local environment. And he's found, I've heard John Stewart talk about this as well. You know, he used to do The Daily Show. It shaped the national conversation. Now he like helps out the, the local community garden and like assists activists at a local level. And there's something psychological about focusing like the locus of your own attention on things that you can control on things that involve actual human beings in the flesh around you, like about learning your friend's kids names and, you know, just doing things that are good in your local life that I think is fulfilling in a way. And I'm, I mean, I'm not preaching from experience here because I'm the first person to fall into the trap of talking about gigantic abstract ideas that are motivating the world instead of making my bed. But there's something, I mean, I think there's something in the kind of Jordan Peterson idea that can sometimes get caricatured as harsh and strict and patriarchal in just like have the self-discipline to like look after your own little patch and that doesn't mean don't care about climate change, doesn't mean don't care about, you know, Roe versus Wade or whatever, but the more your mind exists in this abstract social media argument universe of big issues over which you really have no control, the less happy you're going to be. And the more you can focus on your sphere of influence, sphere of control, the more happy you're going to be. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that because if we can really focus on the, our immediate surrounding and let it sort of cascade from there, that's a powerful thing, especially focusing on the people around us, our family, our friend, our community, being there for our friends if they need to go to the hospital, be, if someone's not feeling good, showing up to their home and sitting with them, giving them time and energy and attention. Like Kindness can be spread in that way in a most powerful way. And that's really what's that's really what's going to make us happy when we have a small community of individuals that we are supporting and encouraging and really being there for one another. And then you can also have the inspiration to talk about the bigger things. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be done simultaneously. Like if your friend says, Josh, I really need you to come to the hospital with me. Yeah, you drop in, you drop everything and go. That's meaningful, right? You did something for a friend. You were there for them in a time of need or whoever is in your life, right? Like not forgetting our neighbors, not forgetting our immediate community and society, because that's where we will, as human beings, get the most nourishment. We will feel feel more secure and peaceful and happy when we care for people around us and when the people around us care for us. And that takes a, a lot of work for to create a harmonious environment where we can kind of care and trust one another. And then at the same time, we can think about the bigger issues. Why not? Right? And But mm. in order for, as we're thinking about the bigger issues, implementing them in a smaller in, in our sort of like microcosm of our own environment, right? So we can be, you can have a small group, a little village that's being very environmentally friendly, very conscious about the earth and caring for one another. What a great example they're setting now for anyone else to see. Right? And then that can spill out onto the, the greater society. On the, leading by example. 
On the question of having an even keel that you were talking about, uh, like, you know, not necessarily thinking that good things that happen are good and bad things that happen are bad, but maintaining an equilibrium, an emotional equilibrium. Do you remember the moment in Charlie Wilson's War, the Tom Hanks film with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? It's not a great film, but it's a lot of fun. When uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays a CIA officer, is uh, he tells a parable to the Tom Hanks character who has, who has successfully managed to chase the Soviets out of Afghanistan by arming the Mujahideen. Uh, and, of course, they can't see that that ultimately will lead to al-Qaeda and ultimately lead to 9-11 at the time. Yeah. But he says this parable where he goes, uh, like, uh, there's a, a Zen master and a boy and on his 16th birthday the boy gets a horse as a present and all the people in the village go, oh, that's great. And the Zen master goes, we'll see. And then one day the boy's riding and he gets thrown off the horse and he hurts his leg and he can't walk anymore. And the villagers go, oh, that's terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. And then the village goes to war and all the young men get sent off to fight, but the boy can't fight because his leg's all messed up. And the villagers say, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. (laughs) It's sort of a favorite of mine. Yeah, no, I've heard that actually in in a slightly different way uh, with the same exact story. Because when something happens, we're so quick and eager to label it as good as bad, good or bad, depending on what we've seen on social media or how our opinions have been formed by everything we're watching in the media, right? We're so quick to label it good or bad. We don't know what is good and what is bad. Why don't we just see everything as an opportunity for growth and maturity, right? Everything is that. How do you label something good or bad, right? We don't know. Like, it's just, it's a strange idea, right? Like what is good and what is bad? Maybe some things may be obviously good or bad, but still you don't know what the, like the pandemic, it's bad. Yes. Is it making us more conscious as a human race of being a little bit more environmentally conscious, maybe more conscious of our health? I hope so. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that's something good that's coming out of it. Like how are we treating the planet? How are we treating the animals? Is that contributing to what just happened? Did we all just do this? Are we... Are, are we, we're, I know we're busy blaming one part of the world for the pandemic, but I'm like, we're all to blame from this thing. You know, we're all just like totally tearing apart our environment. Like we're all to blame for whatever just happened. It's not just one nation or one person or whatever. We're all responsible for everything that's happening. Collectively, we do have to take responsibility for everything that's that's happening, right? And Panda, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the trajectory of the human race that is an interesting question (laughs) optimistic or pessimistic you know i think that at least mindfulness and meditation are spreading like wildfire and not obviously everyone's going to practice it uh, and you know on a consistent basis or practice it in the right way if there is a right way to practice it. But I do think that as a human race, we are becoming more conscious of the environment, of our own minds, of our own emotions, about empathy. I think we are becoming more conscious of that. And so I'm hopeful because we are becoming more conscious. What happens 100 years from now, I don't know. And honestly, I'm just trying to live a better life each day for myself and trying to inspire others to do the same that day, the next day, the next week, right? So I'm happy that I have a chance to spread that message and hoping that people take it and spread it to another person 
and then to another person, right? So that's all I can really focus on. And I feel very positive, very grateful that I'm having a chance to do that. And I think we all, every single one of us has a chance to spread a little positivity and positive message to others through our own speech, through our own behavior, through our own actions, through our own practices. So that's how I would answer. I'm, I'm neither. I'm just focusing on how I can improve, how, how I can be better tomorrow than I was today, and how I can help other people think about doing the same mm. in their own lives. Pandit, thanks for helping me. Thanks for ruminating uh, with me. I'm going to go away and meditate for precisely four days and then pack it in and blame you. It's lovely to talk to you <laughs> <laughs> again. Thanks, mate. Josh, thanks so much. It was wonderful speaking to you again. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.